1: Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. You're listening to Getting to the Point, the business reinvention podcast from Big Small. In this series, we hear inspiring stories from those who've cut through complexity and confusion to redefine their brands and businesses. Our guest today is Andrew Block. 20 years ago, Andrew founded PR agency Frank which has since grown to become one of the world's largest consumer shops. We'll hear more about Frank in a moment, but let's get straight into it. Andrew, you look like a man who likes to get to the point.
0: Yeah, I always try and do my best not to waffle and bore people. Try and do the same today. Excellent.
1: Um, but I'd like to start with Frank, if you don't mind. And in particular, the name. I'm curious to know how, how you chose that name and what it meant to you when you were first starting out.
0: Well, it was a good name in the kind of 20-odd years on. I'm not bored of it yet. And it actually proved to be a better name than we thought, because I think today, being frank in, in the world we're in is more important than it ever has been. But the name really was a bit of a kind of double entendre. It was Half of it was about myself and the other founder, Graham's, I guess, sort of just approach to doing... Business, open, honest, no bullshit. We were the kind of characters that, I don't know, maybe sort of broke away from some of the stereotypes that existed fairly or unfairly in in the PR world. Um, So the second part of of the name came from a bit of a play on our heritage, which was um, Lynn Franks, the agency that we both grew up in. And Lynn Franks was a pretty famous agency in the 80s and 90s, most famous for being the agency that Absolutely Fabulous was based on. um, And as well as being a fairly crazy place to work, it was incredibly creative and we wanted to keep the best bits of that alive. The agency was actually sold and merged into a a different big international agency and the name was lost. So we wanted to pay homage to that and, and keep that part of it alive. And now, you know, having Frank above the door, I think gives us the license to be completely honest with clients, tell them what we believe, not just say yes, and give them plans that are actually going to work and make a difference to their business. And for you,
1: how important is it for brands in the world of PR to get to the point quickly? It might might be a bit of an obvious question when it comes to standing out um, with PR
0: ideas, but how important do you think it is? It's incredibly important, and I think... Now, more so than ever, you know, we're bombarded with commercial messages, and getting a message out there isn't a problem anymore. And you put a budget behind a campaign, and you can reach millions of people in literally a matter of moments. But actually, the challenge is cutting through and getting them to sit up, pay attention, and notice what you're talking about. And in order to do that, you have to get to the point, you have to capture their attention, you can't say a hundred things at once, you need to find the message that's going to resonate, that's going to ultimately get them talking about your brand and creating an action, whether that action is changing their opinion or buying something or voting for something. That's what you're trying to do to get to the point. And to get to the point, you do need to be succinct and and have a strong message. Otherwise, your message will get seen, but it just will be unnoticed. And I think it's almost, you know, advertising nowadays, communications can be... it's almost like white noise, you know, you don't notice that you leave your front door and from the second you've left your front door there's messages everywhere, you know, down to sort of ads on your coffee cup, on the stairs going up the tube every day, ads on your Instagram feed, on your Twitter feed when you're visiting a website and you almost kind of block them out subconsciously and I think it's about penetrating the bullshit buffers and just getting through and, and getting noticed so to do that you do have to think a little bit differently be a bit more creative and capture people's attention.
1: As well as needing to cut through there's been a lot of talk in recent times of brands needing to do that in a way that's authentic and um, particularly because social media has allowed people to call out brands that say one thing whilst doing another um, how has this drive for authenticity impacted the world of PR do you think?
0: Authenticity it's, it's kind of a bit of an overused cliche, but consumers are smarter than ever and they will see through something that is inauthentic. So it's about consistency of, of messaging, coming up with something that is believable and feels true. I think you know CSR and corporate purpose is more important than ever. For brands, and if that's just kind of a tick box or feels like it's just a tick box from a CMO or or whoever, consumers can, can see through that. So they like brands that feel like they're doing things because they want to do it, because it's the right thing to do, not because they're just trying to tick that box and and say that they've done something. And I think you know, when you're creating a marketing campaign that is multifaceted and appears in lots of different places that message has to remain consistent throughout and your, your voice and the tone of it and the way that you communicate the language needs to be consistent if it's going to work otherwise it just becomes sort of inauthentic and, and you know going back to what you were saying before you know if you want to get to the point one of the key things you have to do with communications is be consistent throughout so that the message is getting to a consumer many, many times, but having the same end result each time in terms of how they receive the brand and and what they take from it. So you can't kind of say one thing on one hand and then do another on on the other. You have to keep your communication consistent and authentic throughout.
1: Absolutely. What do you think the difference is between um, PR that gets people talking and PR that is absolutely brand-defining?
0: I mean, PR that gets people talking can and should be brand-defining. Essentially, to get someone talking, it has to be interesting enough that it's worthy of a conversation, whether that conversation is sort of physical in, in the pub around the water cooler, as an American would say, or online. So there has to be something that they can take from the message and, and pass on. And that, that can be anything. Really, there's lots of different ways that talkability sort of manifests itself in the end result of, of a campaign. So it could be the use of humor, something funny. It could be adding value. It could be human interest. It could be controversy or invented controversy. It could be sex. You know, all these different sort of things are things that we know that people talk about. The media will cover, and you, you have to find the right sort of elements for your brand and what you want to talk about. I think sometimes as a brand owner, you can be guilty of a sort of introspection, maybe being, especially when you're a founder of a brand and an entrepreneur, you're incredibly proud of every different thing to do with your business and you want to say everything. The skill is sort of trimming it back to the point that is of interest and not going with that urge to say loads of things, but finding that, one key USP or point of difference in your brand that's that's going to make a difference and get people talking but you don't want to get people talking just for the sake of it it has to lead to an end purpose whatever that is in terms of the business KPI that that you want to achieve so yeah sometimes talkability for the sake of it doesn't work it has to link back to that to that business KPI, which as I said, could be a change in perception or opinion, could be driving sales, can be anything really, it could be eliminating a sort of negative view of a brand and, and moving it into a more contemporary direction or trying to reach a different audience, it, it all has to link together, I mean, I've, I've never been a believer in PR for the sake of PR and doing things just for the sake of it, you know, that's why going back to the Frank bit. It's important when you get a brief from a client to not just take it on face value and and say yes and and answer what they want. It's looking at it and really examining, is that the right thing to do for the business? Is it going to shift the dial? And I I never wanted to do the type of PR that didn't make a difference. And sometimes you can do PR campaigns that have a, a great deal of output, but actually in terms of, an outcome there's no impact so I'll always challenge people within our agency or when I'm doing work myself to really think yeah is this going to shift the dial is it going to make a difference and if it's not what could and it, it takes a brave client to listen to you and that most good clients will do you know that they want they don't necessarily know how to write the brief or articulate what they want so a good client will listen to you and take your advice and I think probably some of the campaigns, the best campaigns we've ever done are ones where we have received a brief and almost ripped it up and written our own brief in terms of what we believe is going to make a difference. Could you give
1: us some examples of uh, clients that you've worked on or, or otherwise um, that have done exactly that effectively?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, one of the things that I think is really important when, when you're running an agency is not to get caught in the trap of Looking at the way something's always been done. So, you know, how does how do travel companies market themselves? How do food companies market themselves? How do entertainment companies market themselves? And just sort of it's really, really easy to look at campaigns that have fallen into a discipline and just sort of follow that formula. I'm I'm a big fan of kind of just taking inspiration from other industries and other ways of doing things. I think you know, probably the campaign that is one of my favorite campaigns that we ever did and hopefully exemplifies the principles of talkability and sort of breaking category norms was, I mean, this campaign is about 15 years old, but it remains a sort of classic for me, but it was for HP Source. And the brief that we got through at the time was what I would call a traditional kind of product food brief. You know, HP Source, great with your fry up, they, they wanted to sort of expand the repertoire of how you could use HP Source. And, you know, we kind of looked at this brief and we thought, you know, it's an iconic brand. Everyone's heard of HP. Really, there aren't that many recipes you can do with it. It's quite limited in terms of where you can go with that sort of campaign. It's going to be hard work. And is it really going to make a difference? Actually, when we were starting to sort of work through the brief, one of the things That dawned upon us is when you've got something in your head and you're thinking about it you start using it so you know my HP source usage over the couple of weeks we were tackling this brief went up exponentially because I kept thinking oh I quite fancy bacon sandwich or whatever it might be anyway we sort of looked at the brand and broke down the DNA and it was typically British it was iconic so we started to look at other things that were typically British and iconic and where we could maybe add a bit of personality and modernise the brand slightly. And somehow or other, we sort of stumbled upon the sport of snooker, which was very, very British sport. And we thought, let's try and do something that's never been done before, which is always a good way of creating attention. So we approached the World Snooker Organisation and said, has anyone ever sponsored a ball in snooker? and they said no and we were like well we'd like to sponsor the brown ball and somehow or other I really to this day don't quite know how or why they agreed to it but they agreed that HP Source would be able to sponsor the brown ball in snooker so we were pretty happy with that We thought that's cool that's going to get some attention and then we thought you know how can we take it a step further so there's a snooker player called Jimmy White who is kind of one of the fans' favourites, not at the top of his game, but proper Brit, nice bloke. You can imagine him with his HP source. Anyway, we called up Jimmy and said to him, would you consider changing your name by default to Jimmy Brown? And he said, yeah, why not? Be a laugh. And so Jimmy White changed his name by default to Jimmy Brown. And then to sort of fuel the talkability and the conversation, we decided we would wind up the BBC and Sky and Eurosport and all of the broadcasters of the forthcoming Masters Tournament. So we, rather than write a press release, we issued a letter from Jimmy's lawyers which said, Jimmy's now changed his name to Jimmy Brown and you need to refer to him during the tournament as Jimmy Brown, otherwise he's not going to play. And sometimes you have a bit of luck with these things. And the the BBC played right into our hands and they went completely mad about it. And they said, this is a commercial thing. We can't do it. We're the BBC, we're not allowed to promote. And we were like, what are you talking about? This was all through lawyers. You know, this is, it's not commercial. It's just changed his name from white to brown. There's no brand name, there's no reference. And they've got their knickers in a massive twist. And I mean, the, the media coverage was immense. And in the end, they decided they would call him the Whirlwind, which is his nickname. So rather than Jimmy White or Jimmy Brown, he was just called the Whirlwind throughout this tournament. And I remember a moment sort of going to watch one of his matches. He actually did really, really well in this tournament. He was expected to get in the first round, and I think he got to the semis or something. So we went to one of the matches, and as we were walking down Wembley Way towards the arena, there was people selling merchandise of, Jimmy White slash Brown, you know, holding a bottle of HP sauce and scarves that said Jimmy Brown and all this. kind. It it was unbelievable. And it had really like taken on its own momentum. And that to me was sort of the definition of talkability because, you know, we weren't paying people to produce merchandise. You just couldn't ask for it. And like the whole tournament, he got disproportionate media coverage. But what was fantastic, obviously, about this campaign, apart from the results, was sales of hp went through the roof and they had their highest increase in sales that they'd seen in their history in the last sort of 100 or so years that they've been going and that completely didn't answer their brief but actually the brief was sell more hp source if you broke it down and it achieved that and then we went on to do loads of different stuff with them we did a campaign to save the british calf the campaign was codenamed fuck the frappuccino and The insight was all these kind of Starbucks and costas cropping up on every high street was actually really detrimental to the fortunes of these traditional British calves, the home of the fry-up. So we thought we'd go out, save the British calf, and we created these sort of brown wristbands that you could purchase and posters for all the calves. And again, you know, it took on its own life because obviously the calves were getting suddenly this great... PR, which was good for their local businesses. So they all started promoting it themselves and requesting wristbands that they could give away to customers. And then we did a campaign after that where we thought we'd sort of just have a bit of fun with the bottle, which had remained the same for hundreds of years. It has the Houses of Parliament on it. That's what HP stands for. And we approached Paul Smith to see if he would be interested in doing a limited edition version of HP Source, which he did. And he did. 1899 bottles of HP sauce with the Paul Smith logo, and they're beautiful. And then we went to Harrods and said, Would you consider stocking this exclusively? They said yes, and we ended up with a bottle of HP sauce in the window of Harrods. I think it was the first bottle and the last bottle Paul Smith signed himself, and they ended up being auctioned by Mohammed El Fayed and raising thousands and thousands of pounds for charity. And that for me, sorry, it's a really, really long answer to what was a very short question, but just a good example of, I mean, really ripping up a brief. And the easy option would have been to say, okay, let's get a chef and we'll create loads of different recipes and we'll do some video blogs and all this kind of, and I just don't think it would have made a difference. You know, bottom line is HP sauce is great with a fry up. There's not much use for anything else, but let's just remind people why they love this brand. and get it in their head, build the emotional connection, make it relevant to a slightly younger audience, maybe new audiences, and you will see your sales increase. And, you know, that was was a great campaign and it built, well, it was a brilliant foundation for the agency. I think it was a campaign that really put Frank on the map. And for, I mean, still to this day, people come to the agency and say, can we have a Jimmy Brown? I always say it takes a good client to be able to produce these campaigns it would have been much easier to say no and we stick to our sort of rest ppr because that's what we've always done take takes a decent plan yeah long answer to a short question
1: great answer uh, you, you can take a breath now <laughs> you're listening to getting to the point the business reinvention podcast from big small The HP story is such a good one that now you've got me wanting to hear more about more brand stories. Um, Could you tell us a bit about what you've been doing for Burger King?
0: So Burger King has been a client for a couple of years. I mean, it's a brilliant client and they're very, very brave with their communication. And I can't take credit for even a fraction of it. But I've been involved in a few of their campaigns. They've got a marketing director that is open to receiving ideas and we'll take ideas from anywhere, really. I think the campaign that I like the best, probably the one that I've been involved in, is a campaign called Meltdown. And it was a CSR campaign, and Burger King recognised the need to reduce their plastic. And one of the key contributors to plastic waste was the single-use plastic that you get with the kids' meals. And really, when you think about it, these meals... You know, the kids sort of like the toy, but it gets played with and then thrown in the bin within two seconds. So we wanted to create a campaign to promote the fact that they were going to eliminate thousands of tons of plastic waste by stopping giving away plastic toys with their kids' meals. One of the things that it's worth saying with Burger King, you know, part of the reason why they behave like they do is because they're a challenger brand to McDonald's and they have fewer restaurants and a vastly limited budget in comparison to what McDonald's spend. So they have to do things differently. You can't play the same game and expect to achieve the same results if you're not starting from the same point. So when you've got less budget, you have to do things differently and you can provoke and have fun and be a bit cheeky and obviously the biggest contributor to single-use plastic waste in this area is McDonald's with their happiness, but the meltdown campaign was really about saying to consumers, we're going to eliminate plastic waste, bring in your plastic toys, not just from our restaurant, but from any restaurant, and we're going to melt them down and make them into something more useful. And what we did with the amnesty and the, the plastic toys that we received was use them to make playgrounds, plastic trays from the recycled materials, all sorts of different useful things within Burger King restaurant. And we launched it with this kind of giant melting bunny statue. And there was a great campaign film which showed what we were doing. And it was just a really good way to communicate purpose. And Burger King were incredible in terms of how they worked through all of their restaurants to ensure this went into place and they were able to say that they were eliminating single-use plastic toys from all of their meals with immediate effect. I think some companies are a bit guilty of saying by 2025 we'll have done this, by 2030 we'll have done this. We felt like to really have an impact, we needed to do it straight away. And full credit to them for being able to put that in place and come up with some alternatives for kids that they could get, so non-plastic sort of fun things to go with their meals. And it was a brilliant campaign I and mean, it had so much impact overnight and received blanket coverage really across the world. So, so that was a, a really great campaign to be involved with and one that I was really proud to be a part of because it genuinely made a difference, had purpose at its core. And you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about being authentic, I think one of the reasons why it worked is because it wasn't just a gimmick. It wasn't jumping on the bandwagon. That They actually, as a business, committed to, to doing this. So it went all the way through and was wrapped in a really nice creative campaign.
1: Such a powerful idea. And although it's completely different in tone to the HP example, I love that it's got the same purity of thought, cutting through to find one thing to focus on and then going really big with that. I think we should keep going with these real life examples. They're fascinating stories. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about the work you've done with Compare the Market.
0: Compare the Market was a client that Frank had been working on for about six months together with um, their ad agency, VCP. And to cut a long story short, it wasn't doing very well as a business. They couldn't get any cut through from an ad perspective perspective very, very expensive to buy the search terms on Google for price comparison. Um, And they were close to shutting down the business. And there was this kind of crunch meeting with the MD, which I was at, which VCP were at. And they were like, look, we need to do something. It's just not working. It's costing too much to promote ourselves. And we can't differentiate ourselves from the competitors we're not making any money, and if we can't turn this around in, in a few months, this is kind of the end, which was pretty sad, and at the time, price comparison was in quite an early stage of its life cycle, but there were several players in the market, and the, you know the PR was hard because we were trying to get into personal finance sections and use very, very rational messaging to explain how a price comparison site could help you reduce the cost of your car insurance, your house insurance. But, you know, that education message was pretty dull. The opportunities were fairly limited. Once a journalist sort of written about what is price comparison, you know, they were done. And even when they did write about you, they were writing about you next to sort of all of your competitors. So you had a sort of, one in four chance that someone would go to your site versus one of the competitors and anyway so we all went away worried we we're going to lose this client upset that the business wasn't doing particularly well and it was a lovely team there and i'd love to say it was my idea to create the meerkat it wasn't it was two work experience that the ad agency came up with this thought in a pub i think like a couple of days before the pitch where they thought you know oh market meerkat that sounds a bit similar. And they created this fictional character who is now sort of infamous, Alexander Orlov, who was going to be this founder of Compare the Meerkat, who was really agitated because he was getting all this traffic to his website, which compared Meerkats because people were getting it confused with Compare the Market. And that was the sort of premise of the first ad. And the ad agency built this. I mean, it was really funny. It was kind of like this whole website, Compare the Meerkat, where you could literally compare different types of meerkats. So our role as, as the PR agency was to make this meerkat famous, but it was so rich in territory. And sometimes ad agencies can be quite guilty of coming up with an ad and just saying, do some PR. And I guess the easy route would be just promoting the ad, and you know, the ad agency wanted to see it in campaign and in the media titles. But we sort of thought we can have some real fun with this. and. Actually, we took inspiration from Disney and how they would create sort of brand bibles for their characters and If you think about a sort of Mickey Mouse or a Pluto or whoever they 're very, very strict in terms of how they market their characters and you would never see them out of context. they would always have the same voice, all of these sort of kind of things. So we took those principles and applied it to the meerkat and then we thought let's create a series of firsts that an animated character would never have kind of done before. And we started off relatively safe and we gave him his own radio show. And on the radio show, he would interview, he interviewed Piers Morgan, he interviewed David Hasselhoff, and it did really, really well. It was kind of released as a podcast and went straight to number one. Um, we played around with the term simples and we then submitted that into the Oxford English Dictionary and it became Word of the Year, which was really cool. Um, We did loads, I mean, loads and loads of things, really. We built all his social media channels. He had more followers at one stage than Katie Price and kind of all these big kind of Wayne Rooney, these reality stars was kind of building and building. Um, And then we came up with the idea of let's create a meerkat toy. And we approached ZSL London Zoo to ask if we could launch this toy in their meerkat enclosure in London Zoo. And we would give the proceeds of the sale of the toy to the charity. And it went absolutely nuts. People couldn't get enough of these stuffed meerkats. And in the end, kind of, they were going on eBay for thousands and thousands of pounds, which was like mad. And, you know, one of my... I think proudest achievements and biggest regrets now is the fact that over ten years later there's still a meerkat toy given away with every single policy that compare the market sell and I just regret not taking a share of revenue on on those because it's it's been incredible for their business and we carried on that campaign you know for years, and you know now I think in the end people almost got a bit bored by the meerkat who was a victim of his own success and we agreed to sort of dial down the PR in a bit because we didn't want it to be one of those fads that becomes old-fashioned and you know symbols became part of British language really and just vocabulary and so we kind of just let it peter out slowly and he had a book he was in a pantomime I mean all sorts of crazy things was did web chats with the sun. he was the first ever non-human to have An at-home feature in Hello magazine. (laughs) And now we've sort of the campaign's evolved and built, and you know, VCP, the ad aims, have done an incredible job of keeping it alive and creating sort of higher scale promotions like the cinema ticket campaign with Meerkat movies and sponsorship of Coronation Street and all of these kind of things that has just made the Meerkat now a household name and a complete differentiator. So the really clever thing about that campaign is going back to the challenge of search terms and, you know, to bid against cheapest car insurance is a really expensive search term to buy on Google Ads. But what this campaign did m- meant that people were going onto Google and just putting Meerkat, compare the Meerkat, <laughs> which didn't cost anything really to bid against. It was their own brand and they were going direct to the Compare the Market website or Compare the Meerkat website, which took you to Compare the Market. So from a business perspective, their cost per acquisition of customer was reduced so dramatically that it completely transformed their business and made them incredibly profitable and successful. So it's a lovely campaign because, A, I think creatively it was just genius that the whole concept of the Meerkat and and anyone can have sort of a, quirky play on name but what was so good about what the ad agency did was really took this idea and developed it and created it and made it campaignable not just sort of a one-off gimmick and then sort of saw through this longevity and actually had a business impact at the end of it which is the most important thing it would have been pointless if it made people laugh but didn't make a difference to the business but it did brilliant and and led the category uh led,
1: led everyone to do exactly the same as i know very well from my uh, from my work on uh, money supermarket you're listening to getting to the point the business reinvention podcast from big small probably one of the most famous people you've worked with um who i imagine does like to get to the point would be lord sugar It'd be great to hear a bit about how he does that. How does he get to the point?
0: Yeah, I mean, Lord Sugar is, I mean, should probably be the icon of your podcast. I mean, he really does get to the point. And I've worked with him for over 20 years, so I know him pretty well. And I think I've learned so much from him. And sometimes he sort of gets to the point, to the point of where it almost feels rude. But I would say... You know, the, the fascinating thing about how he communicates is he's extremely quick in terms of his responsiveness to WhatsApps, emails, but actually the average length of email I receive from him, I would say is about four or five words. And I guess the benefit of working someone for a long time is I don't take offence if he just says yes, no, which is often what a lot of the emails say. I've learned to communicate with him in the same style and I see so many approaches to him whether they're sort of business pitches or media journalists and you have to sort of almost get to the bottom of the email to figure out what someone is actually asking and I've learned from that that actually the key to good communication is say what you want quickly if you want to give a bit of background and context you can always sort of put you know here's some background as to it but what do you want? Do you want five minutes of their time? Do you want a million pounds investment? Do you want them to do an interview? Just say that straight away. And they're either going to sort of say yes or no, or capture their interest. And then if they need more information, they'll sort of get it from that. I think what he's also really good at is being able to articulate what people are thinking and quite complex issues in a way that people understand. And I had some fascinating meetings, you know, when he was business czar and working into Gordon Brown when he was prime minister. Gordon Brown was, you know, recognized the fact that he was able to get across messages that the government just couldn't really get across, just in a simple language and and get to the point. And that's why people like him or don't like him, you know, as, as the case may be. But there's a there's a real skill to it and I would say out of all of the people I've worked with he's probably the person that I've learned the most from in in terms of being able to articulate what you want what you want to say what you want to achieve and there's a real merit to that I think we sort of live in a world where people are kind of just waffle and talk shit really and don't get around to actually achieving something so he does that really really well.
1: So maybe you could give us some advice uh, now. Um, you kept Frank uh, at the top for what 20, 20 years. What was the key to growing big, but staying fresh and focused?
0: It's an excellent question. And it's a question I've sort of reflected on a number of times. I mean, I think the simplest answer to it is, in my opinion, you're, you're only as good as your last campaign and what makes an agency fresh and relevant is the work. That was always the thing that kept me awake at night, still does keep me awake at night. You know, what is going to be the next great campaign? You can't kind of dine out on the legacy of Compare the Meerkat 10 years ago. There needs to be more modern examples. So the work is, is what does it. And I think, you know, This industry, I don't know why, but there's always this sort of excitement around new hot shop agencies. I mean, it happens in PR, it happens in the ad world, and you know, one of the things that sort of always scared me was seeing these great hot agencies sort of fade away for the next hot agency. And I think clients are a bit fickle sometimes, and they just oh, they're cool, they're new, they're shiny. Let's work with them, which is great for sort of upcoming agencies. I mean, I think it's brilliant. And, you know, I think one of the wonderful things about this industry is you can be a new fledgling agency and multinational huge brands will put faith into a one-year-old sort of startup. But as an established agency who started off hot, the only way to stay hot is to consistently deliver great work. And Frank, as an agency, is always really focused on what's our next great campaign and as long as you're doing that year in year out you will remain hot not in the same way as a sort of young startup because you know you're 20 years old so you're not young by definition anymore but in terms of the freshness of your work and how you evolve your thinking and clients see that and you know that they see that quality and consistency over time and you will still be you know an agency that that they want to work with and the moment where that starts to fade and you become sort of I don't know old hat then you go out of favor and that can happen pretty quickly and I think you know Frank has been an amazing journey it's had an amazing journey over 20 years it's still going and still pumping out great campaigns every year but there have been periods where I've felt the work wasn't as good as it could be and you can't help it you have sort of fallow years and When I look back, those were the years where we weren't making as much money and we weren't growing as fast as we could. And in those moments were the moments where you had to really sort of dig deep and push harder. But it was always work first and articulating yourself as an agency and linking back to this of getting to the point. I think one of the things that we always felt as an agency was really important was to have a point of difference, to stand out. and. That point of difference for us was about being a great creative agency and creating campaigns with talkability. And that was what we always focused our sort of output in terms of marketing ourselves around. And there was lots of things we could have talked about. We've got fantastic CSR division. We've got brilliant corporate division, really good at crisis management, really good at B2B and trade as well as consumer but actually, we just wanted to talk about that one thing is we're a creative agency and, and you have to back that up with the work. There's no point just saying you're creative. Everyone says they're creative. Clients will judge that themselves. So say it, but then be able to sort of walk the talk, so to speak.
1: So now getting to our final piece, our final point, and as we like to do, getting a bit more personal So you have moved away from the day-to-day running of uh, of Frank, um, working for um, other businesses and NGOs. But do you think, have you found your own point?
0: It's a very good question. I think, you know, the decision to leave Frank was not an easy one. It was one that sort of I deliberated over for probably a couple of years, really, and as it was getting sort of closer and closer to doing it, I started to ask myself, you know, what do I want to do next? And the truth is I didn't really know the answer. And I know you use a phrase it's kind of like be yourself, it's easier. And 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 I love that. And I, I guess what I found easier to do was figure out what I didn't want to do. So I knew I didn't want to start another agency. I knew that I didn't particularly enjoy the HR side of things. And what I did love doing was working with a diversity of different types of businesses, individuals, but stepping away from something that you've done, you know, for over half your life, is not an easy thing to do. And I did have confidence in my own ability. I, you know, I'm not gonna say like, oh, I just got super lucky and it was all a fluke. Like I did have some inner confidence, but I was scared, I was excited, didn't know what to expect, and then of course what happened was, well not of course what happened, but what happened was I'd planned it and it was all sort of timed out, and then in between that period of sort of agreeing how it was all going to work with Frank and announcing that I was doing it, the pandemic kicked in and I was flipping out, like I couldn't have picked a worse time, had 20 years to take my moment, and I've done it in the middle of the biggest global pandemic, you know, of all time, but... With hindsight, it was actually a fantastic timing. And I think, you know, I'm always one to try and take positives out of adverse situations. And I think what the last six months have taught us all is it's a great time to reflect on whether what you're doing is right, to adapt, not just to sort of hunker down and weather the storm, but actually to come out fighting. And because I was starting in my new direction at this moment in time, it allowed me to shape my portfolio businesses in a way that was relevant to what was going on at the moment so what was important for me was to choose a variety of different things I get bored really easily so I didn't just want to go deep in one or two things I wanted to go across as many different businesses and work with as many different individuals as possible I tried to find that combination of some retained clients to give me the consistency of month in month out adding value and getting rewarded in recognition of that but combine that with some sort of in and out projects and I've done a few sort of crazy like in out one month burst one week burst one day burst of sort of helping out on crisis management or whatever it might be doing some charity stuff where I can add some value and give something back helping young people which is again something that I know that I really really enjoy is mentoring people on their journey so like getting involved with people like Princess Trust has allowed me to do that so it's been a great journey and I think what I've discovered I guess is that there is life beyond agency and I'm still lucky enough to be involved with Frank as a non-exec and I get to sort of share in some of the good bits without having to deal with some of the tougher things that are going on at, at the moment so I've enjoyed that so it's it's been great and it's it is a bit of a change in in my journey having done the same thing for 20 years even though I absolutely loved it I would never say I was bored of Frank I genuinely genuinely every day well not every day but most days were a pleasure to be there and be a part of it so it wasn't boredom but I felt in some ways I wasn't pushing myself hard enough and I could almost do it With my eyes closed, once you've dealt with one crisis, one client complaint, one staff issue, you've done it. So I just wanted to do something different that was going to make me jump out of bed and I guess take myself out of my comfort zone a little bit. And I've loved it. I've loved every single second so far. So hopefully that will continue.
1: So getting to the very final point then. So this podcast is about reinvention cutting through the bullshit and getting to the point, one single-minded point. So with that in mind, what is the single most important thing to do when coming up with
0: a PR idea? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think there is one single most important thing. Um, But if if I was going to try and give you an answer, it would be, what are you trying to achieve? That's got to be the starting point. And if you are trying to achieve, for argument's sake, growth in sales or visitors to a website or change in perception, then you have to link back and work backwards to what are you going to do in order to achieve that. There is no point in PR or any form of marketing for the sake of marketing. It always has to have a result at the end of it. So the most important thing is know what you want to achieve. And sometimes, as stupid as it sounds, clients don't think about that. They sort of write the brief without that single-minded focus on what they're trying to do at the end of it. So that would be my my one single thing. Brilliant. So
1: that brings us to the end. Andrew, thank you very much for giving us your time today and for sharing so many great insights and stories.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: That was getting to the point. If you would like to get to the point, Big Small can help. Visit bigsmall.works and redefine your business in 12 weeks.